Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to another episode of Something Rhymes with Purple. I don't know where you listen to this podcast. Some people listen in the bath. I'd have thought that's a bit dangerous because, well, certainly when I was young, you were told not to have anything vaguely electrical or mechanical near the bath. But anyway, some people listen in the bath. Other people listen in the car. People listen on headphones going to work, commuting. But a lot of people I meet seem to listen to our podcast as they're going for a walk. How, Susie Dent, do you think people listen to our podcast? From people you've met, what do they tell you about where they listen to this? To be honest, it's not come up very often, but I know we get a lot of emails from purple people saying, during the pandemic particularly, I think it was like this, you know, globally, quite often we were only allowed out for a certain amount of time a day. I mean, that just seems extraordinary, that sentence, doesn't it? But obviously, many of us then rediscovered the joy of walking and that bit of time to stop and pause. Uh, So I think a lot of purple people continued listening to us or even discovered us while they were out walking for exercise and for that just bit of release. Do you listen to podcasts when you're out walking? When when do you listen? To, I mean, because I don't listen to them out walking. When I'm out walking, I'm loving, I was particularly loving last year, listening to the bird song again. Yeah. Now aeroplanes are back. So it, in my part of London, you hear a lot of aeroplanes. So do you listen to podcasts out walking? Um, no, I'm like you. I also have a sort of slight fear of not hearing something important if I've got headphones in when I walk. So occasionally I do, but more often than not, I listen to podcasts um, as I fall asleep, which is lovely, but it does mean I have to keep going back to the beginning of many of them. But I find them very kind of relaxing background chat that somehow then penetrates my consciousness. It's a bit like when people say, um, put a piece of paper under your pillow before you have a big exam and somehow the words will sort of, you know, permeate your brain. I think that's... Do they say that? Oh I've gosh, never heard that, that was, before. That was an old wise tale when I was little, but I absolutely believed it. I remember that at school, put blotting paper. You know what blotting paper is? Absolutely, I used to have blotting paper. When you had ink yeah. and you blotted the ink and it was sort of... If you put it inside your shoes, it would make you faint. <laughs> <laughs> and so people put blotting paper in their shoes in the hope of fainting before an exam. Oh, wow, how funny. Uh, so that, uh, and then you could get out of the exam or be given, you know, 
funny these are. I know, I know. And actually, now, I don't know if you've heard of TikTok, Giles, but TikTok is that. Have I heard of TikTok? I'm virtually a TikTok icon. You are a TikTok icon. Of course, I'm on it. Are you on it? I am. Of course, I'm on it. I'm I'm on it. You see, you can see me dancing and prancing. I'm not just on it, but I'm soon going to be on it in a very big way because Mr. Motivator and I are doing some most amusing TikTok uh, dances together to improve our posture. You are unbelievable. Whose idea was this? Uh, It was Mr. Motivator's idea. I want to explain to people internationally if they don't know who Mr. Motivator is. Uh, Mr. Motivator is a Jamaican-born British keep-fit guru, but also a marvellous actor called Derek Evans. And he became famous as Mr. Motivator back in the 1980s, and he's had a great resurgence during lockdown because he helps people keep fit. Uh, we together, we were on uh, Michael McIntyre's recording of Michael McIntyre's programme, The Wheel, the other oh, yeah. day, and he saw me stepping off the set, and he said, Giles, I don't like your posture. And I said, what am I going to do about it? He said, what are you going to do about it is you're going to imagine you've got an orange between your shoulder blades. Hold the orange between your shoulder blades. Now squeeze that orange until the juice trickles down your spine. And I began doing that. You do it now, Susie. Pretend you've got an orange between your shoulder blades. Now squeeze that orange until the juice trickles down your spine. Are you sitting better? Oh, I'm actually in real pain. No, well, that's because... Are you supposed to squeeze that tightly? I don't think I could do this for very long. You don't have to do it very long. You've done it now. Okay, Okay, relax. If you do that every hour, when you take a little break, you'll find quite quickly your posture improves. So, the point is, you mentioned TikTok, Mr. Motivator and I are spreading the word about good posture with little exercises like squeeze your orange. Yeah. um, And we're doing it to music on TikTok. Okay. And we're going viral. We're we're going viral. viral. No matter where you go. And actually, (laughs) but that's not what we're here to talk about today. We are... What are we here to talk about today? We want to talk about walking, going back back to that subject. Take it away, Susie Dent. Okay, well... I just wanted to talk a little bit about, well, the joy of walking, but also the Rambler's kind of tribal conversation. Because, as you know, I love to collect the shorthand and the jargon of particular groups of people. And walkers are no different, particularly because they're quite chatty. You know, they're sort of resolutely bent on forward momentum and they like chatting at the same time. So I'll just take you through a quick lexicon of, first of all, some of the words for walking itself, if you like. So I'll start with hike, to go for a hike. That started to appear in the early years of the 19th century. Its origins are a little bit elusive, but early records suggest it wasn't a good thing. So one glossary of West Country dialect, for example, says that to hike off was to go off, used generally in a bad sense. And of course, today we still tell people to take a hike if we want them to, you know, sod off. Rambling... Meanwhile, it's 400 years older. That's embraced lots of different meanings. We wander off a subject if we ramble as well as down a hill. And that probably goes back to a very old Dutch word, ramelen. Now, this is quite interesting because we think it's actually linked to another Dutch word. Well, the same Dutch word, really, uh, just a different form of it, meaning to copulate. Because apparently to ramble was once used of the night wanderings of the amorous cat. Isn't that brilliant? I love that Mm. one. We have trekking. So that was originally Afrikaans. So that was to travel or migrate by ox wagon. And that ultimately goes back to a Dutch word meaning to draw or to pull. 
So that's quite a nice one. What else do we have? We have to strut. Now, anyone who struts their stuff is a bit pavanine in my experience. Pavanine means peacock-like. You're proud like a peacock if you're pavanine. And to pavanize is to strut around like a peacock. And to strut probably goes back simply to an old English word. Don't say anything, just To stand out stiffly, to swell or bulge out. Seems to be a lot of double entendre in, in a lot of these words. Is there, forgive me for interrupting, but is there any intention of it being double entendre? There no, I don't vulgar? think so. I think it just goes back to the age old equation between a man who kind of struts his stuff and his virility. So there is a kind of link, isn't there? I suppose so. I don't think it was particularly hidden either nowadays. I think these are sort of hidden histories for us. If you'd been to drama school, you would have learnt about... They, they have an exercise at almost all drama schools that I know of where they get the students to walk into the room in different ways because you become a different character. You know, if you walk into a room with your head bowed, leaning with, leading with your head, you're a different person than if you come into the room, as it were, with hips forward, strutting into the room. Uh. And, and so, actually, it's quite interesting to play the game of how you come into the room and you become a different person. Yeah. You walk in, you stroll in, you amble in, you stride in, you strut in, you dawdle you at the door. Oh, dawdle. Tiptoe. Have you told us about dawdle? Dawdle is lovely. Definitely a dialect word. There's another one, daddle, to walk unsteadily. And there's one theory that it's influenced by the bird, the door, as in the jackdaw, D-A-W, because the bird was regarded as being quite heavy and sort of cumbersome. So that's quite a nice one. Trapes. I love the word traipsing. It's kind of got a bit of a kind of slogging, plodding feel to it. And if you're traipsing all over the place, probably from French, trépasser, to pass beyond. Same as trudging. And I think one of my trios in the past has been trampoos. To trampoos is to kind of walk heavily and reluctantly. Something a child might do if you're dragging them along to a shop or something that you might do to the kettle in the morning. So lots and lots of different words. And there always have been. There's the slack packer, which is a reluctant backpacker. <laughs> In the 19th century, there was one called a pedestrianist. And I like this because this was a 19th century form of competitive walking, which was a really popular spectator sport. And aristocrats of the time would apparently pit their footmen against one another alongside their master's carriages to see who could kind of walk, <laughs> walk the fastest, which... The idea of it just makes me laugh. So lots of different motivations for walking, aren't there? There's a physical benefit. Can I check a couple? Have, have oh, we touched? Did you just touch on march? Did you touch on march? Marching along? To march along is simply from the French marché. I don't think there's anything more than that. To march for us is to march in a very regimented way. In French marché is simply to walk. Amble is from, again, from the French and it described a horse. You would have an ambling horse at the same time as you had hackney horses, ones that were just available for general hire. I would have linked it to ambulatory, mm -hmm. as in moving around, mm -hmm. amble. Is Absolutely that right. And ambulance, which were once walking hospitals, mobile hospitals. So, yeah, those are all linked. Saunter, to saunter. Um, saunter is, I think, from the French again, and it, it reminds me always of the flaneur, you know, the kind of professional saunterer, the one, the, usually a gentleman who would kind of saunter around town and again, probably strut his or her stuff. So saunter, yeah, that's been around for quite a long time. Nothing more to say about that, except it's just such a lovely activity. What about strolling? I'm strolling along, strolling. singing a song. <laughs> 
side by side. Finally, this one's German, strollen, and it comes from the Swiss German, ultimately, strollchen, meaning to stroll around or loaf about as well. So if you're strolling, you're out for a stroll, you're out for a just a sort of pleasant afternoon, really, if you're out for a stroll, I think. And as I say, lots of lots of different motivations for walking, physical benefits and inspiration as well. So didn't Dickens make lots of nighttime walks through the streets of London to work out his he plot did. lines? Absolutely. That's what he said he was doing. Oh. I think he probably was doing that. He did. He walked miles. I mean, literally miles. Yeah. He would walk 20 miles at a time uh, and think through the plot. And he was not alone. The writer Ibsen, the Norwegian playwright Henrik Ibsen, was also a great walker. Dickens would walk much of the night and then in the morning sit down early in the morning with tea brought to him by a servant and he would then write up what he'd been thinking about the night before. But uh, the Norwegian playwright Henrik Ibsen, uh, I believe, would think about what he was going to write for up to a year. Really? Walking, walking around. Wow working out the plot, working out the characterization, and spend a year thinking about it before he sat down to, to write his work. But since he ended up with complete masterpieces that put him, you know, in the top trio, I'd say, of the world's greatest playwrights, it was worth doing. And I do that. Funnily enough, when I'm writing a fiction, mm. I've, I've written a number of novels, that's how I do it. I, I do think of the plot while walking along. And the pace at which you walk affects what you write. I find if you trudge... It's because it's going slowly. Oh, what's the origin of trudge? It's a nice word. It's echoic. It is. Uh, which, That's in a sense, it, it sort of echoes the, it echoes the sort of feeling, anyway, about trudging along. Yeah. What's the origin of we that? We don't know. It appeared in the 1500s, but it says origin unknown in the dictionary. It sounds very sort of dialectal to me. One person who absolutely never trudged anywhere because he went with huge enthusiasm and is a god to all serious walkers, and that's A.W., a.k.a. Alfred Wainwright and he was the author of, of those canonical guides to the Lakeland Fells and many many other guides to the walks of Britain I mean an amazing amazing man so yeah we, we mustn't miss him out well I'm going back to Mr Motivator Mr Motivator tells me that after I've squeezed my orange and let the between my shoulder blades and let the juice trickle down my spine I should then walk with purpose uh, okay because that's one of the dangers is you just if you you dawdle as you go along or even trudge or plod look at your phone. it's not the same as walking with purpose yeah. or looking at the looking at the phone I mentioned plod there is there a, what's the origin That's of that? Plodding I'm along. pretty sure that one's um, onomatopoeic. I'm sure that is all about just a sort of heaviness, plod, a bit like plop, plod. Got a, a sort of real lumberous feel to it, hasn't it? Have you ever bagged a Munro? I do know what this means, but uh, unpack it. I've never bagged a Munro. I would love to. I, I'm not into orienteering, mountaineering. I do like walking. I like a little bit of incline and decline, but uh, I've never done proper fell walking. No. So what is that thing you mentioned? Munro bagging. bagging well, the Munros are the Scottish mountains of at least 3,000 feet. Oh. And there are f very few people, but, but very proud people who've managed to bag all 282, including one that's called In Pin, Inaccessible Pinnacle on Sky. That's almost sheer if you look at that one. So those who have are officially known as the completers and unofficially as the Munro braggers because they've managed to climb all of them. They're right to boast. What an achievement. Oh. Are you a bit of a mountaineer? No, I, I'm, 
Obsessed with mountaineering books and films, absolutely obsessed with them, but you would never find me with a crampon ever anywhere. I'm absolutely terrified of the idea of it. And also, we talked in last week's episode about how nesh I am, susceptible to the cold. I wouldn't stand a chance, (laughs) but I would get frostbite just even on the the base camp. But I love the idea of mountains and I do love, I love walking up. I don't like walking down, but I love walking up steep hills. So I, I can do that, but just without any of the equipment and ice and snow, thanks. How old is the word mountaineering? I mean, it's like mountain and then earring, like engine, engineering, um, orienteering. Yeah. But when did the earring come into mountains? Um, when did I'm going to look that up for originate? you in the Oxford English Dictionary. Um 1802, and actually first mentioned in Samuel Taylor Coleridge, who oh. wrote in his letter, one of his letters, spent the greater part of the next day mountaineering. So the noun mountaineer, actually much earlier, 1600 or 1599. Um, and a mountaineer originally was a person who was native to a mountainous region. And actually it was used as a bit of a synonym for a hillbilly or a, a sort of bumpkin, if you like, a sort of uncivilised or uneducated person who lived in the country, a sort of backwoodsman, if you like. Ah. And then I think only in the 19th century came to be associated with mountain climbing. This is why we need dictionaries to tell us this and why we need you, because you might well be reading a book written in the 18th century where somebody is described as a mountaineer and you would think, ah, this is somebody who climbs mountains. But in fact, what they're saying is this is somebody who's a bit primitive, who lives in the mountain region. And likewise, I think there are so many, you know, professions where you think, oh, that's quite interesting. I'm just trying to think there's another one. Um, I think it was a urinator was, yes, a urinator. The first meaning of that was one who dives underwater, a diver in the 17th century. Gosh, now it's somebody who takes yes. the piss, a urinator, or in fact delivers it. Uh, so why why would that have been the origin of it, somebody who is a, a diver? Uh, because urinari in Latin meant to dive. It didn't actually mean to pee. Goodness. Hmm. Don't quite know. Oh, you see, I, I love the way we learn things. <laughs> orienteering, what is orienteering? And it's a much more modern word, obviously, than mountaineering, I assume. Yes, I've never been orienteering either. I don't quite know how good I am. I mean, that goes back to orient, which was to turn oneself towards, to orientate oneself originally to the east. And it's quite challenging and it's quite cerebral, I think, as well as you know, physical, um, because you need exceptional navigational skills to use a compass and, and you navigate from point to point. Yes. You mentioned compass there and points of the compass. Yeah. Compass, where does that yeah. come from? Yeah, so I'm hopeless with a compass. I don't know about you. I, I never understood the, where it was pointing, quite what that meant. No. Lots of different points of uncertainty in the history of compass. Various siblings in different languages, Portuguese, Italian, etc. German as well, compass, which was a mariner's compass. We don't particularly know. It may go back to a word for a sundial, but to be honest, we're not completely sure where that comes from. But it's pretty old, 1400, and it's first mentioned in the legend of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Gawain. Gawain. I know what a compass is, and I've heard people talking about the cardinal points. Mm. And I thought, what's this got to do with a cardinal? Maybe there was a pope who decided the north would be there, the south, and so these, and it was agreed by a college of cardinals. Is that right? Well, they're both linked, really, because um, cardinal goes back to a word that meant the sort of the chief, um, if you like. So the sort of the main 
the main points. You have a cardinal virtue, you have a cardinal sin. Um, in the church, it's a leading dignitary who forms part of this, you know, the sacred college. So it's, it's um, all to do with principal or chief, really, which, as you say, those are the chief points of the compass. Ah, should we go on a camping expedition together? Oh goodness, would that be I quite think fun? I'd be absolutely rubbish at it. I think my navigational skills would be terrible, but I'm always willing to try. I'd be frightened also of getting lost. Also, I'm a terrible map reader. Now, of course, I'm totally dependent on SatNav on my um, cell phone, my mobile Are phone. Are you? Whereas, yes. Uh, it's appalling. I just, I mean, I'm literally, I'm going to see somebody, unless I've got their postcode, I don't know where I'm going. <laughs> And I used to be very good at maps, and I'm no longer any good at a map. It's a very simple word, map, M-A-P. What's the origin of map? Yeah, so the map goes back to, ultimately, the Latin mappa mundi, a map of the world, which came into French as mappa monde, meaning the same thing, but ultimately the Latin for a map. And actually, it could also mean a towel or a napkin, so anything that you sort of fold it out, if you like. That's interesting, because the, the French for napkin is nap, is, or, or tablecloth. Nap. Nap. N -A -P -P -E. So napkin is a little, little one. Yes, I, that, not related to map. Ah. <laughs> it's all so very it's confusing. A, it's just a coincidence. I mean, it, just it is very confusing. Webs I mean, all these things. Absolutely. Very good. And are there any other walking words that we haven't touched on? Well, I just quite, as I say, quite like the sort of little things that walkers exchange amongst themselves. So I think I've told you before that vitamin I is the hiker's painkiller of choice for anything from blisters to muscle ache. And that's ibuprofen, vitamin I. And then vitamin B is the beer that washes it down. So you need a bit of vitamin I and vitamin B. A flip flopper is a hiker who sets off in one direction. Then at some point, <laughs> this is me, decides to hike back in the opposite one. That would definitely be me. There's a misery index as well, I discovered. So that is the scale of suffering on a different, a difficult walk. So 10 means you're in full on pain and intensely longing for the pub. And one means that you're probably in the pub already. What else do you have? The bivy bag, which was the sleeping bag which is for use in the um, open air and so on and so forth. Oh, and if you also, do you remember we talked a little while ago about trailblazers? Um, mm -hmm. So this is linked to walking. If you are a, a trailblazer, you are in a literal sense using a way marking system that uses painted marks along the route. And blaze was a term borrowed from the Vikings. Um, and for them, a blazy was a white star on a horse's forehead. And it became blaze in English. And it meant marking a tree by stripping off a piece of bark as a way of showing a path or boundary in a forest. You'll see lots of records of trail blazing. So the early settlers would mark these trees to show the path that they had taken to stake out their territory. So I love that connection between blazing a trail and, and walking. So again, it's the, it, it goes back to this idea of shining brightly. As in blazing sunshine. Exactly right. Exactly right. Good. Let's take a quick break and then I'm going to tell you about my favourite place to walk in the British Isles and I want to hear about yours. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, nothing. No tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. 
Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Welcome back. This is Something Rhymes with Purple, and we're walking about today. We're strolling. We're ambling. I'm trying to walk with purpose because I've been told by my new physical fitness guru, Mr. Motivator, that that's what I should be doing at all times. And I've had great fun this summer because I have spent quite a bit of time in East Yorkshire and West Yorkshire. When I was in East Yorkshire, I was walking along the seaside. I love... I was in Bridlington, and I walked north and south, and walking along cliff tops and the the edge of a beach is, for me, wonderful. Seeing the sea, seeing the horizon, I love that. So I love that in East Yorkshire. And then I went over to West Yorkshire and spent time in what is known as Bronte country, near the town of Haworth, mm. where the famous Bronte sisters, Anne, Emily and Charlotte, lived and died young and wrote novels that are still being read nearly 200 years later. Where would you, within the British Isles, Susie Dent, where would you go for a walk? Yorkshire, I agree, is absolutely beautiful. Ilkley, the Yorkshire Moors, just stunning. Also, Devon, where I go most summers, beautiful, beautiful walks. You have to avoid the times when, as my dad would say, the grockles are there, the tourists. But for the most part, you can find a spot and just sit and wander at the sea and then and then go off again. Oh, and there's Oxfordshire also is absolutely beautiful. So many stunning walks uh, just in the Cotswolds, the Windrush Valley, beautiful, beautiful places. So very lucky that although I live in a city, I can just even cycle out sometimes and go for a lovely walk. When I go for a long walk, I like to be unencumbered. And I often, when I was doing this walking in, in Bronte country in the West Yorkshire Moors, it was fantastic. I kept encountering people who had virtually a refrigerator and all their worldly <laughs> goods in huge knapsacks on their backs. Yeah. Exhausting, I suppose, necessary if you're out camping. But for me, it's the freedom of walking unencumbered. Do you take any Kendall mint cake? Ah, I, I do like Kendall mint cake, but I'm on this low-carb diet. It's not possible. Oh, it's so sugary. I mean, it is just pure sugar, isn't it? Kendall mint cake is the is the walker's snack of choice, I should explain for all the international purple listeners. And it is essentially just peppermint-flavoured sugar in kind of hard form. And it gives you instant energy. I have to say, you have a bit of a slump the other side, but it is rather delicious. And it comes from Kendall in the Lake District. So a shout out to Kendall mint cake. Look, we better get on with our correspondence because yes. people have been writing to us from all over the world. Two weeks ago, in our puntastic episode, which was called uh, Paronomasia, why did we call it that? Uh, because, because, of course, that's what it's that's about. That's another word for yes. a pun. We asked you to send in your favourite pun shop names. And we've had several, haven't we? Yes. Mark Hevingham from Birmingham let us know about a local greengrocer called Melon Collie. Collie, as in C-O-U-L-I for cauliflower. Melon Collie. The worse they are, the better they are. <laughs> his excellent name would have the opposite effect on his mood and put a little spring in his step. A company of tree surgeons in Stroud in Gloucestershire went full force with their puns, calling themselves cops and loggers. Thank you, Sheila Kutcher, for writing in about that one. And oh. Luke Burgess enlightened us with this fantastic take on the famous London department store. It, it's basically a picture of a company selling fridges, washing machines. It says free fitting and free delivery. And the name is Sell Fridges. Sell Fridges. It's brilliant. Very clever. And I wondered if Selfridges would object to that. The department store in Oxford Street in London 
named, of course, after eponymously after Gordon Selfridge, I think was the founder of Selfridges. Ah. But Selfridges, yeah. S-E-L-L, Fridges, all one it's word. Brilliant. Very ingenious. It's brilliant. And um, we had a lovely letter from Libby Angelo Laloli. I hope I've got that right, Libby. She says she spent a lovely morning catching up on some of the podcasts. Thank you. She has a word that she'd love to know the origin of, and it's the word mulligrub. My grandmother often used it when she was tired of a long spell of dreary weather. She would say, this weather gives me the mulligrubs, or I'm tired of this mulligrub weather. We're just going into winter now, so I often use this word myself to describe the kind of grey, drizzly weather we're experiencing at the moment. I'm not sure where Libby is, actually, but we're pretty much in winter here, even though it's supposed to be summer, I have to say. Libby, your emails give me huge excitement because I often tweet this word. I think it might have been one of my trio on the podcast before now. Mulligrubs. I haven't heard any living person use this one or remember it because I always quote it as a 16th century word. I think I've always heard that it's around and that there are a few isolated uses of it, but you have actually made me very happy. Mulligrubs, a state of fit or fit of depression, low spirits, can also be a bad temper or mood, can be brought on by the weather or anything really. And we don't quite know where it comes from, but it might be linked to a mulligrub. And a mulligrub was a grub that feeds on coarse meal, but it was used as a term of abuse as well. It was a bit of a witch tea grub, really. But it was used as a kind of insult for something. And so that may have led to it being used for kind of, you know, anything that was a bit objectionable. In the 17th century, it could also mean stomachache or colic. So if you if you were sick with the mulligrubs, then you were not very happy at all. Love that word. And I love Claude Mensuti, who has written very generously from Australia. We've been listening to your podcast for some time here in Melbourne, pronounced Melbourne here I in Australia. I think we should say Giles. Melbourne as well, yeah. We should say Melbourne yeah. too, except do we say Paris? No, we say Paris. But I think Melbourne, uh, do I think we most say people Roma? say Melbourne, don't they? I think we just, yes. They do say, I say Melbourne because I assume it's named, I assume Melbourne was named after the great Victorian uh, Prime Minister, Lord Melbourne. Possibly. But maybe I'm wrong. Quite possibly. Uh, and so, but Melbourne it is. My question is about the barbecue or barbie as we call it here. We saw a programme set in France and they were cooking pork on a spit. The French fellow who set up the spit said that the rod that went through the pig from the head, barbe, to the tail, queue, gave us the term barbe au queue, from head to tail. I imagine actually beard to tail, but anyway. Now, Susie had a different derivation in an earlier podcast, but I feel this one, barbe au queue, barbe <laughs> You're to tail, You're making me laugh because of that listener that wrote in and told, uh, told us off for our terrible fake French accents. Um, but, um, my French accent is good. It I, is good. I, I, didn't, I didn't do the Australian accent because my, my, my strine is not okay. good. I know that. But barbe so is good, d- and apologies to that single listener that, um, that wrote in to tell us how bad we were. No, but you're right. If it isn't good enough, I can improve it. But barbe au queue, I think there's a certain <laughs> ring to it. Now, yes, what Claude points out is that I gave a different derivation in an earlier podcast. And that derivation is that it goes back to a Haitian word so from Haiti, a frame Ooh. or Haiti, I should say, a framework of sticks set upon posts. So it was a rough wooden framework that was used for supporting meat above a fire that was then smoked or dried. And the Oxford English Dictionary and most modern dictionaries, I have to say, they're usually very, very careful in not giving very 
personal comments or subjective judgments on things. This is an exception and it did make me laugh. So with apologies to Claude and the man who told him this, this is what the OED said. So it tells you that it does go back to that word from Haiti. And then it says, the alleged French barbaque beard to tail is an absurd conjecture suggested merely by the sound of the word. So there you go. That one has been roundly rejected by by the OED. Sorry about that, Claude. That is coming from a great height, (laughs) squashing that. Yes. But thank you very much, Claude, for getting in touch. And please, if you've got any queries, questions, comments, ideas, suggestions, do get in touch with us. It's simply purple at somethingelse.com. Just email us. And something is spelt without a G to be a little bit different. Purple at somethingelse.com. Each week, Susie Dent introduces us to a trio of words that she loves and she would like to share with us. What are those three interesting words you've got for us today? Well, the first one I just like because, you know, the the dictionary is full of words that you may not ever have to use, but you might just be glad that there is, in fact, a word for it. And this one is one of those. It's guddle, guddle, and it means to fish with one's hands. So to cup your hands, submerge them under the water and try and catch a fish that way, to guddle. I just love the fact that that word exists, um, as long as you throw the fish back. This one again for, well, it's, it's just an interesting one with an interesting history. A moonraker, not not a James Bond Ian Fleming novel, but a native of the county of Wiltshire. They call themselves moonrakers. So the story told about this one is that a group of inhabitants of Wiltshire who were a little bit worse for wear came back from a night out, saw what they saw was a large cheese or something in a pond and started raking the pond to try and get it out. It was, in fact, the reflection of the moon. But there's another story that will say that the men were, in fact, raking the pond for kegs of smuggled brandy. And when they were caught, they fooled everyone by saying, oh, we were just mad or we were drunk. Either way, it gave, a, I have to say, affectionate nickname for inhabitants of Wiltshire, which is Moonraker. Mm. I just like the story behind that one. And finally, my third is if you know somebody who's just a little bit greasy, a little bit unctuous, perhaps. Um, have I said this one before? Pinguid. Oh, Pinguid. No, Pinguid that. means oily or greasy. Pinguid. I just love the How sound of it. A bit like Pingu. So P-I-N-G-U-I-D. Pingu being a popular so, penguin in a cartoon over here. So somebody who is a bit oligianus. Yes. Is that another word for it? Uh, oily, urahipish. Yeah. It says of of, the, of resembling fat, oily or greasy. So probably oh. used for substances rather than people, but I reckon you can extend oh. it a little bit. Pinguid. Pinguid. I like it. Have you got a poem for us, Charles? A brilliant trio. Yes, I have got a poem. And I wanted a poem by one of the Bronte sisters because having talked today about the beauty of the Yorkshire Moors, I've been reflecting on the Bronte sisters and on what an extraordinary family they were. It must be unique that there were three daughters in one household and there were two others who who died very young, the Bronte sisters themselves died young at 29, 30 and 40, but that they could have created novels that have lived for nearly 200 years is remarkable. I don't think there is any other family in the history of world literature that has made such an impact. What was there in their upbringing or was it in the the world in which they were brought up 
the parsonage at Howarth, and the moors nearby. When you read any of their work, the, the moors and the weather are part of it. Wuthering Heights, of course. Wuthering, I think, means bad weather, doesn't it? Yeah. It means sort of, it means a wind, of windswept. Wind. Yeah. 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 So Emily Bronte was the poet, I think, of the family. And I've got a short poem by her. It's called Spellbound, and I think it's very evocative. The night is darkening round me. The wild winds coldly blow. But a tyrant spell has bound me, and I cannot, cannot go. The giant trees are bending, their bare boughs weighed with snow, and the storm is fast ascending, and yet I cannot go. Clouds beyond clouds above me, wastes beyond wastes below, but nothing drear can move me. I will not, cannot go. Spellbound by Emily Bronte. Thank you to all the purple people who have got in touch with us. Please keep doing so at purple at somethingelse.com. Something Rhymes with Purple is a Something Else production produced by Lawrence Bassett and Harriet Wells with additional production from Steve Ackerman, Ella McLeod, Jay Beale. And yes. Have I missed anyone else? Well, I don't, you haven't. You, well, you've missed out this fellow who's got lost on the moors somewhere. <laughs> uh, we call him Gully. Oh, yeah, him. <laughs>